All right, how's everybody doing? Good? Uh, it's good to be uh, together uh, today. I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving uh, holiday. And even if you didn't, oh, I'm glad that you're here today. We're doing something a little bit different today. Uh, we're broadcasting actually uh, to our different locations from here. Uh, so I want to give a shout out to all of you watching from our different locations. Can we give it up for our different locations tuning in today? And I also want to welcome those of you that are watching uh, online uh, from wherever you're watching from. It's good to be gathered together uh, under the authority of God's word. Uh, we're going to dive right in. We are actually finishing up today a series that we've been in uh, for the last 11 weeks, a series that we're calling Why You Need a Biblical Church. And what we're doing in this series is we're actually walking through what we call the 12 traits of a biblical church. These are 12 traits that summarize, at least to the best of our ability, summarize what we believe the New Testament teaches about uh, what a, a church should look like, how a church should function. And this is the last sermon in the series. And next week, we're going to start a brand new Advent series called King of the Cosmos, uh, where we're going to just slow down and we're just going to like slow cook in Philippians chapter 2. And we're just going to meditate on the glory of Christ that's revealed in Philippians chapter 2. So I'm excited to dive into that new series next week. But today I want to wrap up this series, Why You Need a Biblical Church, 12 Traits of a Biblical Church. And the last trait we're going to talk about today is biblical ordinances. Now, I don't want to just explain the ordinances. I am going to do that. But what I ultimately want to do, what I've been praying for is that God would help us to love the ordinances, that we would not just understand them or appreciate them, but that we would actually love and cherish them as these gifts that Jesus has given us to practice in the church. And here's how I want to do that. I want us to reflect first just on the wonder of the gospel. Is that all right? Moko wasn't talking. Loudon, Prince William, help me out here. Is that all right? All right. I want us to meditate on the wonder of the gospel, and then I want us to see how the ordinances help us actually to do that together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I want us to read two passages of scripture, one that summarizes the historical reality of the gospel and the other that captures the personal reality of the gospel. And I'd actually love for us here, uh, those of you watching from our different locations, and if you're watching online, you can feel free to join us too. I would love for us to stand and read from these passages together. So let's stand here all over at our different locations. Let's stand. We're going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, and then Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. And we'll have the verses up on the screen. I'm going to read the part. We're going to go old school. For those of you that grew up in church, traditional churches, I'm going to read the part that says leader, and I want us together to read the part that says congregation. We're going to read that part that says congregation out loud together. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. I'll get us started. Paul writes this. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. And by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Let's read this out loud together. That Christ died for our sins 
in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. In Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, let me start us off. Paul writes this, verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And let's read this out loud together. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for technology, God, that brings us together across different locations and in homes and apartment buildings and some people probably cheating and watching at work. Lord, we thank you that we're able to gather together to hear from you through your word. And God, we pray that you would not only speak to our hearts through your word, but that you would work in our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. I want to make two points from these two passages as the background for why we need the biblical ordinances. So I want to point out to gospel realities from these passages that we just read together as the background for why we need and why we should love the biblical ordinances. Here's point number one. Our salvation is based on what God has done for us in Christ. Our salvation is based on what God has done for us in Christ. Let me give you some context here. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is wrapping up a letter that he wrote to Christians in a Greek city called Corinth. And we studied this entire letter extensively in 2020 and 2021. We were in 1 Corinthians forever because the pandemic broke out in the middle of it. We took a long break, whatever, you can go back, you can watch it, you can listen to it. But the letter covers a wide range of topics from conflict to singleness and sexuality to worship and spiritual gifts. But I want you to notice that as Paul is bringing the letter to a close, he wants to remind these believers of the gospel, which he says is of first importance. He's saying, of all the things I've taught you, nothing else is as important as the gospel. And we could use that reminder today as Christians in our culture, nothing else that has been passed on to us in the scriptures is more important than the gospel, the basic fundamentals of the Christian faith. And Paul summarizes here what I'll call the historical reality of the gospel, the core historical events that form the bedrock of the Christian faith. Look at what he says in verse three. Number one, he says, Jesus died for our sins. That's what he says. He says, for I delivered to you As of first importance, what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Now, first of all, listen, if you're new to the Bible, it's important to note that Paul didn't grow up in church. He didn't grow up in Sunday school. He didn't grow up in vacation Bible school. He didn't grow up in a Christian family or even a Christian community. Paul was a devout Jewish leader who hated Jesus 
and thought Christianity was not only ridiculous, but blasphemous. And yet his life had been so transformed by the love and power of Jesus in his adult life that now he had devoted his life to spreading the message that he had so violently opposed. And so notice in verse 3 that now when he thinks about Jesus, he doesn't just see Jesus as merely a human teacher. He sees Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, God himself who came in human form to bring salvation. Christ died, which is verified by the fact that he was buried. And so listen, he didn't just appear to be dead like many Muslims claim. Jesus died and his dead body was buried and sealed in a tomb. And the gospel is the good news that his death was part of a divine plan. Jesus, Paul says, died for our sins. And the emphasis there is our. Jesus was sinless. He didn't die because of his sins. He died for our sins. And this hits every single one of us in this room, every single one of us watching, whether you're a Christian or not. Every single one of us has sinned against God. In our lust, we've dishonored bodies that were made for God's glory. In our greed, we have loved our possessions more than we've loved the poor. In our selfishness, we've been impatient and irritable with people around us in ways that have left them feeling insignificant and disregarded. In our anger, we've wounded people with sharp words and hurtful actions. In our arrogance, we've looked down on and been disrespectful to people whom God created with divine dignity. In our gossip, we've torn down people's reputation just because we enjoy being the one who has breaking news about other people's lives. In our lack of self-control, we've constantly chosen what's easiest for us rather than what's best for us. In our dishonesty, we've lied to people, manipulated them, and intentionally distorted the truth. In our chronic discontentment, we have been envious toward others and ungrateful toward God. I can keep going. But do any of you resonate with anything in that list? And here's the thing. Here's the thing. If you're exploring Christianity, this is where you got to lean in to understand the nature of sin Here's what Jesus teaches and what the Bible confirms, that just one of our sins makes us 100% guilty before God. Because our sins aren't just honest mistakes. Our sin is treason against God's authority, vandalism against God's creation, and betrayal against God's love. And God's justice is not like our human justice. Where some crimes go unpunished and some people's sin gets conveniently overlooked. No, all of us are guilty of sin and the wages of sin is death. Physical death that results in eternal death. And so when Paul says that Christ died for our sins, he's saying that when Jesus was on the cross, something deeply disturbing and yet profoundly amazing was happening. Jesus was taking our place Willingly receiving the punishment that we deserve. 
Come on, if that's good news, somebody can say amen. Amen. Something profoundly amazing and beautiful was happening on the cross that Jesus, the Son of God, God, who came in human flesh, was actually taking our place. He was receiving the punishment that you and I deserve. And Jesus' sacrificial death was the fulfillment, listen, of what God had already revealed through the prophet Isaiah about 700 years before Jesus even showed up. Listen to what God says through the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 53, verse 4. He says, surely, talking about the Messiah here, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. In other words, we saw Jesus. He's forecasting, prophesying how people respond to Jesus. They would see him as cursed by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And listen, and the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Our greed, our lust, our anger, our selfishness. God laid on Jesus on the cross, the iniquity of us all. So number one, Jesus died for our sins. And then secondly, back to 1 Corinthians 15 verse 4, Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day, Paul says, in accordance with the scriptures. And so in his crucifixion, Jesus experienced death so that our sins could be forgiven. But listen, in his resurrection, Jesus conquered death so that now through faith in him, we can have eternal life. Listen to me here, wherever you're watching from, you can have eternal life. I talk to people all the time who are not followers of Jesus. And when I ask them, are you sure that you would go to heaven when you die? They say often, they'll either say yes, and when I ask them why, they don't know, or they'll just say, I don't know. I'm just doing the best that I can. Listen to me. On the authority of the words of Jesus, you can have eternal life, and not just have eternal life, but have assurance uh, assurance of eternal life through faith in what Jesus has done for you. By turning from your sin Letting go of of control of your own life and putting your trust in Jesus, in his life as your righteousness, in his death as your sacrifice and forgiveness, in his resurrection as the foundation of your new life with God. You can have eternal life. And listen, you don't need a priest to mediate that for you. You don't need a prayer cloth for somebody to lay on you. You have direct access to God through one mediator, Jesus. And when you put your trust in him, when you confess to him that you are a sinner, that you want to be saved and that you are putting your trust in him, God says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, will be saved. And so Paul makes it clear that the Christian life 
is based on the historical reality of the gospel that Christ died, he was buried, he rose, and as you continue to read chapter 15, he appeared to many witnesses. But the gospel isn't just something you believe one day and then leave behind. This is why I always say that the gospel isn't just the gate into the Christian life. The gospel is the ground of the Christian life. And that's why I also wanted us to read from Romans 6, because when you become a Christian, something profound happens. The historical reality of the gospel becomes the defining reality of your entire life. And this is the difference between someone who identifies as a Christian like I did growing up and someone who is actually a Christian. Because when you truly become a Christian, you're not just forgiven, but you're changed. You're born again and united with Christ. And from that point on, you are no longer the person you used to be. You draw your identity now from who Christ is and what he has done. And so not only is our salvation based on what God has done for us in Christ, but here's number two, the second gospel reality. Now our identity is also based on what God has done for us in Christ. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 6. So let me give you some context here. In Romans 5, Paul has been explaining the fact that salvation is a free gift of God's grace. And like we've already talked about, we receive that gift through faith, not by our works. And so in chapter 6, Paul is anticipating the fact that some people might try to misuse this teaching on grace as a license to continue in unrepentant sin. And listen, you can understand their logic. Like if I'm already saved by God's grace, I didn't do anything to earn it, I can't do anything to lose it, then I might as well just live it up and keep sinning. That's not just an ancient logic that we see in the New Testament. That is a very contemporary logic that many people in the church live based on today. That since my sin has already been covered by the blood of Jesus, then I might as well just kind of keep on living the way I want to live because I already have a free ticket to heaven anyway. My lifestyle doesn't matter because I'm already covered by God's grace. And Paul says, if that's your response to the gospel, then you really have no idea just how profound the gospel is. And here's why. Let me just give you this summary statement before we read Romans 6 again. Listen, the gospel isn't just good news about what God has done for us in Christ. It's also good news about what God has done to us in Christ. So listen to how Paul responds. I can live however I want because I'm covered by grace. Romans chapter 6 verse 3, Paul says, do you not know? That all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And Paul isn't talking about water baptism here. He's using baptized as a metaphor for the work of the Holy Spirit that unites us with Christ. And he says, verse 4, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 
For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Listen, Paul says your sin problem isn't really a sin problem. Your sin problem is an identity problem. That the reason why we often continue in sin is because we don't really understand or we don't make ourselves consciously aware of who we are as those who are loved by God, made in his image. And even more than that, if we are followers of Jesus, those who have been redeemed, those who are now in Christ. You see, before we become Christians, we're born into Adam's family tree. This is taking us all the way back to the beginning of the story, Genesis 3. We're born into Adam's family tree. We inherited his sinful nature and we also inherited his broken relationship with God. And this is what Paul lays out in Romans chapter 4 and 5. The entire human family is under the curse of God's judgment because of Adam's rebellion against God and because of our participation in that rebellion. It's similar to how conflict between different families gets passed down through generations. You beefing with somebody simply because their grandmother was beefing with your grandmother. You don't even fully understand the whole story, but you participate in that drama, in that conflict, because that's a conflict that's been handed down to you. See, this is the natural condition we're born into as part of Adam's family tree. Before we become Christians, we are united with Adam, but when we become Christians, we are born again into a new family, the new family of Jesus. And so where Adam passed down the indwelling sin nature, now from Jesus, we inherit the indwelling Holy Spirit. Where Adam passed down a broken relationship with God, in Christ, we inherit an intimate relationship with God as our heavenly father. Where Adam passed down physical death that leads to eternal death in Christ, we inherit eternal and abundant life. This is what theologians call our union with Christ. And this is one of the most profound teachings in the entire Bible. Before the sake of time, let me just give you just this simple definition of union with Christ. Here's what union with Christ means. It's the covenant bond with Jesus that enables believers to enjoy all the benefits of his life, death, and resurrection. Let me say that again for you that are taking notes. Union with Christ is the covenant bond with Jesus. And I should add, that is produced by the Holy Spirit that enables believers, and this is the good news, that enables believers, it gives us the legal right to enjoy all the benefits of Jesus's life, of his death, and of his resurrection. In other words, Jesus experienced what we deserve so that we can enjoy what he deserves. This is one of the most profound doctrines in the entire Bible. It is the essence of the gospel. It underlies every other truth of the gospel that Jesus experienced what we deserve so that in him we get to enjoy what he deserves, what he's earned. Paul says in Romans 6, you are now united with Jesus in his death, which means the person you used to be died to. 
And you are now united with Jesus in his resurrection, which means you've been given a new identity and a new future. And that should motivate you to live a new life. Now I know what you're thinking. You're like, Mike, I'm tired. That was a lot of theology. (laughs) And others of you are thinking, what does that have to do with the ordinances? Well, that's where Allen Iverson can help us. Now, some of you don't remember who Allen Iverson is. So let me just put, put a picture, the infamous picture of him on Slam Magazine. At one point, Allen Iverson was one of the most revered basketball players in the world. And then his career completely crumbled. You can just Google him and just read the stories about him. And I'll never forget reading these lines in a Washington Post article about how he was struggling after he was out of the NBA. Listen to what the writer said about Allen Iverson. The writer said this, basketball may have been the only thing holding Iverson's life together. He said, for years, for years, a question worried those closest to him. Here's the question. What happens When the most important part of a man's identity, the beam supporting the other unstable matter is no longer there. See what the writer's saying? Allen Iverson grew up, if you know his story, grew up in Virginia playing football and basketball. He was a star athlete in both sports. Everybody knew him as the basketball player, as the football player. There's a whole bunch of drama But I'm going to skip over that, right? He ends up at Georgetown University. He's a star basketball player. Everybody knows him as a star basketball player. He gets drafted into the NBA. Everybody knows him as a star basketball player. He becomes one of the most elite and esteemed basketball players in the world. Everybody knows him as a basketball player, and now he's no longer a basketball player. His entire life and his identity was built on being a star basketball player. And when that's removed, his entire identity began to crumble. And listen, all of us are tempted to build our sense of identity on unstable matter. On things that are bound to change. Wealth. Achievement. Popularity, sexuality, race, politics, our family. And here's what you got to understand. Each of those identities is rooted in and reinforced by a story. And every single one of those stories operates based on the exact same script. Let me give you the script. Here's the script. If I do or have blank, then I'll be blank. That's the script. If I do or have fill in the blank, then I'll be fill in the blank. If I do or have this, then I'll now have this identity, this meaning in life. And all of us fill in those blanks in different ways. 
And it explains why we are exhaust ourselves striving to become someone or to find or prove or somehow protect this identity that we have been building or that was given to us through the words of our father or the lack of words from our father or from our jobs or from our, our education and our degrees. David Foster Wallace was a famous novelist and he gave a commencement speech in 2005 at Kenyon College. And I read this quote a few weeks ago when I preached about biblical worship. But I think it's worth hearing part of it again. He was making the point that even if you're not a religious person, all of us worship or build our identity on something. And even though he wasn't a particularly religious person, he points out something so profound and so tragic about building our identity on the wrong things. Listen to what he says. He says, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You'll never feel like you have enough. He says, if you worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, he says, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. He says, worship power. You build your identity on power. You will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. He's saying that that script always leads to tragedy. If I do or have blank, then I'll be blank. All, it's a story that always ends in tragedy. And even as Christians who have been given a new identity in Christ, we often find ourselves reverting back to those old scripts that tell us to look for our identity in the things of this world. Let me ask you, what story are you living in? What is the script that you are living according to? And here's one of the reasons we need the biblical ordinances. Here's why. Because it's easy for us to forget who we are. It's easy for us to forget who we are. In the midst of all the voices that are telling us who we are supposed to be. It's so easy to go Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday and forget who we are. And so when we gather together as a church, what we see in scripture is this, that the ordinances are gifts from God that remind us of who we are in light of what Christ has done. That remind us that our new life in Christ is based not on what we do for God or that we have or have accomplished, but on what God has done for us and to us. Now, we've covered the biblical ordinances in detail in our 12 traits of a biblical church resources. There's a full-length book. There's a booklet. You can access it online. You can access it, I think, in our lobby as well here and at our different Location. So I'm not going to explain all the details today. I encourage you to read the chapter on biblical ordinances 
in that book, 12 Traits of a Biblical Church. But let me just summarize them briefly in light of these gospel realities that we've been talking about. In the New Testament, we see two ordinances, two God-ordained practices that Christians are commanded to observe together as a church family. Those two ordinances are baptism and the Lord's Supper, which is also referred to as Holy Communion. Now, some Christian traditions refer to the ordinances as sacraments in the sense that God uses those physical rituals and even the physical elements, some believe, to produce spiritual results. And there's disagreement amongst Protestant Christians about what that actually looks like. But in general, Protestants agree that the Roman Catholic view of the sacraments as necessary for salvation not only contradicts the clear teaching of Scripture, but actually distorts the gospel itself. The Bible is clear that the ordinances do not in any way earn or contribute to our salvation. We're saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so baptism and the Lord's Supper are physical symbols of a spiritual reality. The way we put it is baptism is a public declaration of our initial identification with Christ and his church. You see, Jesus was baptized as an example of righteousness and obedience to God, and then he commissioned his disciples to baptize others. This is what we recite together here and across all of our locations every Sunday. The Great Commission, Matthew 28, verse 19. Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And so baptism is not an optional issue for a follower of Jesus. Baptism is an obedience issue. So what does it mean? Well, baptism symbolizes the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's the historical reality, but it also symbolizes our personal participation in those realities. And this is why we baptize people by fully immersing them in water rather than merely sprinkling them. Not only because that's the clear example we see in every instance of baptism in the New Testament, but also because it's the clearest illustration of the saving work of Jesus. As the person is lowered into the water, they're acknowledging the fact that just as Jesus died and was buried, they too have died to their old way of life. And as they're raised out of the water, they're declaring the fact that just as Jesus rose from the grave through faith in Jesus... They too have been spiritually raised, born again, and will one day be physically raised to live a new life in him. And this is why our church doesn't baptize infants. We respect believers in other Christian traditions like Presbyterians and Anglicans that practice infant baptism. But the scriptures are clear that baptism is for those who have been born again and are making a personal profession of faith in Jesus. Baptism is the way you go public with your faith. The way you join believers across all generations in declaring that Jesus has saved you and you are devoting yourself to following him. As you're baptized, listen, we as the church We get to celebrate that with you as we're reminded in a fresh way that Jesus has saved us too. 
and we're here to help each other now follow Jesus. And so listen, if you, you're here, you're watching online, you're at one of our locations, if you've never been baptized as a personal profession of your faith in Jesus, then I would encourage you to take that step as soon as possible. You can go to mcclainbible.org slash baptism to get more information about how you can be baptized at any one of our locations. And parents, you can help your kids do that too. There's a form there that you can fill out so that one of our leaders can follow up with you. Baptism is a public declaration of our initial identification with Christ and his church. And the Lord's Supper or communion is a public celebration of our continual identification with Christ and his church. So Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper right before he was arrested and eventually crucified. You see that in the Gospels. But Paul gives us a helpful summary of Jesus' words in 1 Corinthians 11. Listen to what Paul writes in verse 23. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then look at what he says in verse 27. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself or herself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. What does the Lord's Supper mean? Well, Jesus' words are clear that the Lord's Supper represents the work of Jesus in salvation. The bread symbolizes the body of Jesus, which would eventually be broken for us. And so as we eat the bread, we are reminded, as the prophet Isaiah wrote, that Jesus was crushed for our iniquities. And the cup symbolizes the blood of Jesus the full and final sacrifice that made it possible for us to have a new covenant relationship with God. And so as we take the Lord's Supper together, Jesus is with us and at work among us, not in the elements themselves, but by his spirit as we hear his words spoken over us, this is my body for you. And this cup is the new covenant in my blood. I love how David put it in the 12 Traits book. He said, if baptism is like a wedding ceremony that celebrates initial identification with Christ, then the Lord's Supper is like an anniversary celebration where we are continually reminded of God's sacrificial love for us as we renew our love and loyalty to him. So in light of that, who should take the Lord's Supper? And the answer is simple. It's Christians who are sincerely following Jesus. That's what Paul means when he warns us to examine ourselves before we participate in the Lord's Supper. It's not that we have to be sinless in order to take the Lord's Supper, but we do have to be sincere before him. 
genuinely pursuing obedience to him. So we need to examine ourselves. And in the immediate context of 1 Corinthians, Paul is warning these believers to examine their attitudes and relationships with other members of the church. Because the Lord's Supper isn't just a celebration of our communion with God, it's also a celebration of our communion with one another. Both ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, symbolize and deepen our union with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, I don't know if it's just me getting a little older, if it's the fact that I'm a little tired, but my wife tells me that my memory is getting worse. It should be like basic things. And this happens to you as well. Like my wife will, will be like, Mike, can you bring the, like, Jackson's laundry basket downstairs? I will walk upstairs and I will walk back downstairs without the laundry basket and have no recollection that she ever asked me to begin with. She will also be out here momentarily to lead worship here at MoCo. But that gets a little more serious when, like, we're truly exhausted. I remember one time I was preaching out at our Arlington location. I pulled two all-nighters in a row, working and preparing different teachings and just doing my job as a pastor. And I pulled up to Arlington to their evening service to preach. I preached that service. I got back in the car. I went to Google Maps to put in my address. I could not remember my address. It was the most unsettling feeling, literally the most unsettling, one of the most unsettling feelings I've ever had in my life. I'm literally sitting there, not just like that happens, you know what I'm saying, where it just like slips your mind. I'm literally sitting there for minutes trying my best to remember my address. I could not remember my address. That was the effect of just deep exhaustion. But it gets even more serious when it's the result of like chronic illness or disease. Some of us have loved ones who struggle with dementia or Alzheimer's. I know my grandmother struggles with early signs of dementia. Moments where she doesn't remember who she is and she doesn't remember who we are. And what's crazy is when you do research, what's crazy is that although there's no cure, there are these treatments that scientists and clinicians have now discovered actually, that can actually help almost repair or retain memory in people who are struggling with dementia. And one of them is just music. You see it all over YouTube, these elderly people who have lost their memory. But if you were to come, if they grew up in church and you were to start singing a hymn, they could sing that hymn by memory. And here's what the researchers have found, that when you engage their senses in that way, it literally taps into a portion of the brain that begins to almost restore memory. And listen, this is what the biblical ordinances do for us. That we go through our weeks being bombarded by these messages of who we are and who we're supposed to be. 
And it's so easy for us to forget who we are in Christ and who we are as the, in, in the church as brothers and sisters in Christ, that we are a community that are united to one another. And as we celebrate the power of God and the lives of other people through baptism, and as we come to the table to take the Lord's Supper together, it is as if God in his divine wisdom is engaging our senses in a different way, in a way that helps us to remember who we are in light of what God has done for us in Christ. It's not just us going through the religious motions. These are gifts from God himself to help ground us in the reality of the gospel. So when we celebrate baptism in the Lord's Supper, we're not just remembering the truths of the gospel but we are reenacting and rehearsing the truer, better story of the gospel. And in a very real sense, we are being renewed again by the reality of the gospel. There is so much more going on than you just going through the motions on a Sunday. God made us and he designed us and he has given us these gifts to ground us and help us to remember this new identity that we've been given that we have not earned, but we have simply received through what Jesus did for us in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. And they proclaim to any of you who are not yet followers of Jesus that those same realities can become realities for you too. That the death, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus are also gifts that God has given you so that through faith in him, you might have eternal life and be reconciled to God for all of eternity. And as we close this series on why you need a biblical church, wouldn't it be amazing if for the first time in your life, you actually understood why you need Christ? So I wanna pray for you here, online, wherever you're watching from. I wanna pray for you if you're exploring Christianity, that today would be the day that God would open your heart and that you would confess to him that you are putting your trust in Jesus. And I want to pray for those of us who are followers of Jesus, that God would constantly and in a way that overwhelms us, remind us today of who we are in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for these gifts that you've given us revealed in your word. Father, I feel like I've been drinking from the ocean this week, just reflecting on these astounding truths and realities that are now ours in Christ are symbolized in these ordinances that you've given us that, if we're honest, we've often taken for granted. That honestly, we, we would rather stay home when it's raining or we would rather watch a game than to gather with your church to participate in these gifts, these realities that you've given us in the ordinances, God, would you forgive us, God? Would you renew our faith? Would you renew our zeal? Would you renew our love for you? Would you renew, God, our wonder that 
at what you've done for us and what you've done to us in Christ. And Father, I pray for those who are not yet in Christ. I pray that today you would work in their hearts supernaturally like you did me and for many of us, Lord, that you would draw their hearts into saving faith, God. I pray, Lord, that today would be the day that they would cry out to you for salvation and that you would be faithful to your word to respond with your mercy to save them. Father, we love you but only because you first loved us. We thank you for that. And we pray all this in Jesus' name.